Something's gone wrong. That's how every story begins, doesn't it? You take an ordinary situation and something goes wrong. I mean, of course, most stories don't literally start that way. Maybe they start by establishing the status quo, the standard from which things must deviate in order for us to recognise that something's gone wrong. What, after all, is the classic opening once upon a time, except an attempt to set in place a feeling of history and stasis. Once upon a time, here's how things once were. Now let's watch how they changed. So I suppose I ought to be pleased as a story writer, about to do a big bit in the show that I've been teasing for weeks, happy that something has gone wrong. But I'm not entirely because something has gone wrong. Let me explain. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three cogs enmeshed in our writing manifesto machine. Cog the first to help you write more, cog the second to help you write better and cog the third to help you be a little bit happier while you do those things. To that end I speak to authors, I chat writing and I read listeners first pages and offer feedback. But today, yes today, this very day upon which you are listening to my words karom and kareen through your ear holes i by which i mean we am going to be embarking on a new project what will hopefully be a, a multi-part new string to the podcast's bow where i attempt to write a new novel obviously i wouldn't be much of an attempt if i were writing an old novel but um i mean the newness is implied in the word novel after all look and already already is going wrong uh not wrong that's 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 too judgy wrong wrong it's 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 not according to plan is how it's going and is that a bad thing i don't know but in case you don't religiously read and memorize every one of my tweets and every aside i've made in the intros to previous episodes and if that's the case how dare you let me begin somewhere in the vicinity of the beginning just to bring you up to ramming speed so I've just handed in an edit for the non-fiction project I've been working on for the past year and a half. Between that and getting the 100-day writing challenge written and recorded and out into the world, I haven't had a lot of headspace for stories, for fiction. I think, you know, I suspect a lot of full-time professional fiction writers haven't had a lot of headspace for stories, to be fair. I mean, flipping heck, what a time to be alive. So much stress and uncertainty, some of it intense and not evenly distributed to be sure, but a, a lot of it just low-grade bubbling chronic stress and isolation and anxiety and lack of freedom and an unclear future due to stuff, right? Now, I know you don't need me to tell you this or remind you about it, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to spend the whole episode dwelling on the negatives. We we want to have some respite, right? But I, I think for a lot of us, it's not been an easy year to lose ourselves in creativity, as if it ever was, you know. Uh, but I think with a lot of our tension turning inwards, perhaps partly as a defence mechanism, you know, we you know embark on a, a kind of internal exile, for some people, it's it's thrown the lack of creative spark, the absence of desire or time or energy to write into starker relief because it seems to be the time where everyone is suddenly doing crafts. I mean, not everyone, I hasten to add. Some folks have during the pandemic and lockdown and the various intermediary 
unclear stages. They've had a merry old time. You know, others have diligently carved out a space, regardless of it being really difficult, they've still managed to turn up. Uh, uh, but certainly for me, it has helped that the writing projects I've been most concerned with haven't lent so heavily on creativity and imagination in between parenting and just, you know, getting through the day without collapsing in a heap. It's been touch and go sometimes, you know. I, I started on um, new medication after ta uh, taking just over a year off meds and they have buffered me a bit but it's been hard mentally you know we've been through some things over here in my household that you know not all of them to do with the pandemic and, and sometimes I found it really really hard to keep going in general let alone with my creative creative projects and sometimes look things have been absolutely fine or you know good and happy not all the time of course but I you know I just look there hasn't been much creative monkey business from me you know I, I don't mean masturbating when I should be working I mean that sort of playful experimentation that fizzes around the edges of any writing life you know pratting about jotting down ideas writing in my notebook every day trying out bits of scenes free writing doing quick poems making lists in fact look I've got four or five beginnings of novels sitting around, just ones that I've managed to accrue over the last couple of years, several that got to around the 10,000 word mark, one that made it to around 45,000 words, which is what I intended to be three quarters of the way through that before, you know, with that one, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go on and I've tried to come back to it and I've just, I've lost faith in it. You know, I can't, I, I don't like that story anymore and I can't figure out how to finish it so it's in the heap you know the heap of things that are theoretically all still in my maybe pile but realistically am I going to continue working on them I just don't know I just want to finish something you know to start a thing and end a thing and go tick yep I did the thing I, I saw a story through to completion my second novel the Ice House was was really difficult to write. Not every single day, you know. There were weeks when it felt like I was flying, just whizzing through it. But I also had these periods of doubt and stuckness and not knowing how to solve the shape of it. And I rewrote lots of it and I made these massive changes. Then thought, no, I don't like that either. Here's a third option. Uh, and then I'd go back to the original one and try that again. The first complete draft was nearly a quarter of a million words. And that's not even including all the scenes I'd cut out and alternate versions with different characters. Then I did like 28 drafts of that one, rewriting and cutting it down. 28. And I cut it nearly in half. And I like what it ended up being. You know, I'm proud of it, even though, you know, I'm not a credible advocate for my own work. It's not that. It's just, you know, it was a hard time, full of doubt. And while I was writing it, I found out I was going to be a dad. And I felt like I was racing the baby to finish it. But I, I, I procrastinated a lot. And Suki, my daughter, came before I could finish. And to be honest, she was around a long time before I finally signed off on it. And that was a hard time because, you know, like I had more important things to do, frankly, than be writing a silly novel. And also, if you don't finish novels in this business, you don't get paid. No one pays you for effort, right? Uh, you're not on a retainer just for thinking. 
just for trying stuff out that might not go anywhere. You don't get a salary for chewing your pencil or wandering the parks and coffee shops waiting to be inspired. You get paid for words in a document that someone is willing to publish that readers hopefully are willing to give money for to read. That's it. Everything else is essentially on your dime. So with the end of this big non-fiction project coming up, I wanted to have a go at writing a novel and finishing it. Phew, that, that got a bit heavier than I meant it to. I'm not saying that this is a novel that I'm planning to publish. I'm actually not. I just want to have a go at doing it and hopefully doing it via the podcast makes it kind of quasi-like work, you know? I, I, I mean, I guess... You know, what I just described is actually probably not all that uncommon, right? You know, to have emotions come up about the stuff you want to write or indeed your job, right? I, I, I guess just most people who do a lot of different other jobs don't normally have a platform to then express and talk about it. But, you know, the ways sometimes you don't feel able to do your job quite in the way you'd prefer, you know, to put it mildly, it's a, you know, it's a good It's a good way to come up against some of your insecurities, writing, some of your tender spots. Years ago, I, I had a breakdown trying to write a novel. I wrote a book about what happened, actually, um, which did get published, which I, I realise is ironic. Not In retrospect, not really enough of a meta joke to really salvage what I think is a patchy book um, my first book I'm not 100% happy with it in a, in a way that I am with the honours and the ice house I think I'm glad I wrote it and I used some of the content for a stage show I did called Death Drive which I think is is better and I'm sort of like happier with what that was but the book I think is yeah there's there's some jokes in it that I wouldn't make now I've grown as a person, I hope. Um, look, I, it is a loaded area for me. Like, jokes aside, you know, these things have affected me in the past. And, and the fact that I've got one, two, three, four books, four books published and out there now, and a fifth on the way, doesn't stop this all feeling, you know, emotional. If anything, the stakes have kind of risen because I'm now having, you know, I'm relying on books to be able to live I'm, I'm i'm less employable now i can't retrain as anything else uh, I, I i've gone past the point of no return which is good in a way because you know it cuts both ways this idea of it not getting any easier because it also doesn't get any less exciting any less cool any less of an adventure at least not for me so many things that I pursued when I was growing up like art and animation I wanted to be an animator for a while you know my dad built me a light box I used to do stop motion 3d animation with kind of like plasticine with wire inside I had a super 8 camera the way I'd shoot it a frame at a time this was I unfortunately I was in it just before the technology all shifted to digital where now we can make animations just it's just incredibly accessible with mobile phones and apps you can I, re I remember like doing animation I did some work experience in an animation studio and the kind of height of technology that I was getting to use was a camera that 
instead of you having to shoot each shot and then develop the film it did it on a video where every shot you took the tape would rewind for seven seconds and you'd see what you'd done after a while you would start to see the last seven seconds you'd done in reverse and then it would accelerate for seven seconds to get up to speed to take this one frame so 14 seconds every time you did a shot but you'd get to see what you'd just done because slowly it would be rewinding through the last seven seconds you'd recorded and that was we used a bunch of models from a I want to say it was a this sounds like made up or a joke but I'm pretty sure it was a Danish cheese commercial that had an alien on the moon and there were all these they had the, the animation company had them in their sort of stood in their prop storage all these they were just chunks of polystyrene that had been covered with a glue gun and then painted purple and orange and so we used those for a little planetscape um and I I think I want to say that in the same, because this was in Bristol, it wasn't Ardman Animations that I was doing my work experience at, but I want to say that they had some in their store, they had some of the buildings that were used in the shots from the wrong trousers where Feathers McGraw is climbing up the side of the building. I want to say that there was a couple of those and we stuck them to create a post-apocalyptic landscape. That might be wrong, but that's my memory that that's... In any case, like, I used to be well into it and I thought it was what I was going to go into as a career. And then I don't know really what happened. I think part of it was going to actually work in animation and seeing all these people having to spend their lives making videos for like settlers tums and stuff like that and going this isn't quite as exciting as i envisaged um and seeing how grumpy and miserable a lot of the people were who worked there but i think also it was just like i got to the point where i proved to myself i can do this you know like i was a bit competitive i i think that part of that came out of insecurity and i proved that when i put my mind to it i could kind of accelerate past the people around me in my class basically and do it reasonably well and i go okay i've proven that i can do this and then suddenly i lost interest it didn't have anything more than that apart from a kind of <laughs> a, a kind of i guess it i don't know i don't know whether that's positive or whether it's vanity or a kind of uh, horrible toxic stew of both but um yeah but with stories i still care you know i guess i haven't i guess i've moved out into an arena now where i couldn't on any level turn around fold my arms and go well I've proven that I'm better than every everyone else right that's not I think ever gonna I don't think there's anything that I could possibly do that would, that would make me feel that uh, I don't think there's any writer on earth who could possibly uh, legitimately claim that they've done that uh so maybe it's just that I'll never get there but I feel like I care like you know I I still think stories are, are, are freaking cool I love narrative I love reading I love talking to other people about their stories I like I like reading stories and watching movies and like deconstructing the structure and the plot I I, I love thinking about sentences I love language I love ideas I love making up names for things I love imagining new worlds I am like I'm not even the teensiest bit jaded about storytelling in theory and geeking out about storytelling it's just getting all that to the page you know and not hating myself as I do it I said it before and I'll say it again right here right now right when I'm finished this unnecessarily long qualifying clause prefacing it but stories to me are these beautiful iridescent butterflies flitting around my imagination and I am 
continually terrified, just terrified of trapping them beneath the killing jar of my own technical incompetence and watching them twitch and slowly expire. If you keep the novel in your head, if you never try to write it, it's perfect, right? You never have to test it against reality. You just experience it in glimpses at a distance. It's, it's like a tragic courtly romanced where two star-crossed lovers are dragged apart by circumstances and never get to consummate their relationship and they pine for each other but of course they're not really pining for each other because they don't know each other they're pining for the ideal of their relationship that they never had and imagined it's it's kind of deeply dysfunctional all of this is a long-winded way of saying i wanted to finish something that's how i started getting here where we are today you know I wanted to finish a fictiony something and I've been so busy with my book I hadn't had time for the podcast and I thought why not combine these two things you know it is after all a podcast about writing that's not a vast chasm I need to span here you know no one could accuse me of an utterly bizarre thematic vault fast to suddenly feature in my writing podcast presented by Tim Clare some of Tim Clare's writing and writing process and I thought what if I committed to writing something uh, with the study door open to paraphrase Stephen King in his memoir and writing advice book on writing to not just making reference to the fact I do writing as a day job but actually invite you along with me so we could go from generating ideas deciding what to write planning and structure to first lines and first drafts pushing through plot problems and changes in direction dialogue mushy middles set pieces working towards a climax, then how to manage an ending. We could talk about how to start and end individual scenes, how to close chapters, thinking about overall length, second drafts, you know, when, how do you approach them? Structural edits, line edits, getting feedback from beta readers, final polishes, and then deciding when to say, okay, I'm done, this novel is finished, or at least this novel has been taken as far as I possibly can take it. Like on this show, we have looked at loads of first page pages from you the listeners and and I still want to continue with that and I still will because I enjoy it and frankly most things you can learn about writing a story and making it good you can learn in the microcosm of those first 250 words I I started doing these first pages because I found I did lots of freelance editing and I read it I got sent people's entire novels and I'd read the first page and I'd, I'd start reacting to the first page and before I knew it, I would have written them 5,000 words on just their first page. And then I'd read the rest of the novel. And going through it, I'd like, well, I've kind of already covered this. Like, if they deal with the stylistic problems that I flagged on the first page, then all of the rest of this bit is going to be solved. And to be honest, this bit's irrelevant because I don't think they should start where they did. And there were, you know, there were other things to say. But I found, like, most of what I was saying was just in that first page and I was like oh but also because these were people uh paying me for it who wanted like feedback but also were often kind of like implicitly or explicitly in their covering letter going can you tell me how to get this ready for an agent or I think I just want to find what do you think the best market is for this and I, I was reading it going well I don't think this is ready for market I think you need to sort out some basic you know it's it's just like someone coming to you with like a a cardboard box with kind of like fins attached to the side that are also made out of cardboard and then they've sellotaped a firework to the bottom of it and they're going hey just wanted some feedback what color do you think I should 
paint my moon rocket and you're like i think you should I think you should learn some basics of astrophysics before you before you try to leave earth's atmosphere you know and that's I, I'm saying this out of kindness for you, but if you try to fly to the moon in that, you will die. Uh, uh, and but I, there's often a lot of stuff. There was one way that I talked about those novels um, in my notes, and another way I talked about them when I wrote the my reports on them, because I was kind of beholden to these people. I wasn't being totally honest. I'd kind of. Yeah, I would be quite honest, but there's an irritated way that I would write my reports and then I would write it up in this very kind of like, well done. And often people didn't take the advice. They just saw the positive bits and they thought this person loves this. And I was like, I would just like to be able to do some of these things for free for people so I can be completely 100% honest about how I feel about this as a reader and I can just give them sincere, sincere reaction without hating on them as a person, but just go, this is a crummy sentence, my friend. Because if you fix this, I feel like that's the best gift I can give you. That's worth more than you paying, essentially, for an expensive pat on the back. Like, let me let, let me give you something that can help you. So like, anyway, I have done this a lot on the show and I want to continue doing it. Um, but I don't doubt that there's a whole bunch of other useful areas we could hit on if I try striking out a bit and from my point of view saying okay I'm going to write and finish a novel that's the premise of this next ongoing project that means I'm committed I have accountability uh, I've got to make at least a reasonable fist of seeing it through or I lose face and frankly a little bit of self-respect uh, and I'm, what I'm hoping is and I honestly don't know if this will work because I've never tried it before but what I'm hoping is that my desire to not leave something publicly half done my desire to not look like a quitter my desire to not let you down will outweigh my perfectionism perfectionism is a funny word right because it implies if not outright insists that a perfectionist wants things to be perfect and i say funny as in a funny odd because if that's the definition of perfectionism i'm not a perfectionist or at least i don't feel like a perfectionist what i experience when i look at my work isn't oh i wish this were perfect Although, of course, that would be nice. I wouldn't reject being able to produce perfect work. But what I normally experience is, oh, I wish this was something other than completely shit. Like, I only ever feel as if I'm shooting for adequate, basically. You know, I, I just want... it. Does this scene make sense? Does the story progress? Do the sentences not clunk? You know, is it clear? Is it fun or at least interesting and engaging? You know, if I was reading this, would I go, oh, I look quite like that? You know, those seem like baseline qualifications for us to say a story is working. They're not impossible ideals. And yet very often I don't feel like my work's meeting that very middling, unridiculous standard. The term I might opt for instead of perfectionism, and yes, haha, Tim's being perfectionist about his own perfectionism. It's Timception, the self-regarding ontological nightmare continues, etc, etc. But the phrase I might plump for, dear listener instead of perfectionism is mistake averse i'm not seeking perfection i'm just seeking to avoid the psychological pain of making mistakes that is bad news for creativity terribly obvious observation but worth underlining i think the desire not to err not to look silly the desire to manage image over the desire to get curious to explore to run through various iterations and learn is death 
for our creative practice. But sometimes I derive a lot of my self-image from being a writer. You know, my feelings of worth, my sense of identity. Who am I? Oh, I'm Tim, the writer. I, I make stories and I help other people make stories. Oh, I'm the guy who pays his mortgage making stories. Any sense I might have trouble accomplishing that, that it might come less than easily, feels like a, a threat. It's a threat to my ego. I feel embarrassed because, you know, I want to be this offhand writer guy, insouciantly uh, throwing out tips on storycraft. And also I feel worried that maybe the dream at any moment is going to be over and I have to go and find another job. So I wanted to do something to make something that helps me. And, you know, now I'm confessing that this is largely selfish. You know, that helps me bring myself up against those feelings, but also lets me reflect on them a little bit and maybe share them, which in itself sounds healthy, right? I mean, perhaps not intrinsically entertaining or educational, but good for me, right? And to be honest, you do worry for me sometimes, don't you? So just from a safeguarding perspective, this attempt to get a bit better can only be good news right but also I thought I don't want this to be an ongoing segment that runs years you'll be pleased to hear you know you don't want that either I certainly plan to break up these episodes with other content the more regular content but I think this project would benefit from being reasonably time limited I think that also makes it a little bit exciting but in a sense arbitrarily time limited you may have tried or at least heard of my two free writing courses that I released via this very podcast. If you've uh, attempted one or both, thank you. It was lovely spending that time with you. But each of those, the Couch to 80K Writing Bootcamp and the 100 Day Writing Challenge, each of those episodes had a writing timer in the episode that gave you 10 minutes to do the exercise. Now, there is no reason why anyone ought to be able to write something in 10 minutes. 10 minutes is not some magically creative number. It's not like if someone wrote for 11 or 9, they'd produce something worse. It is arbitrary. It's artificially short. In some ways, it's structured deliberately to give you an unreasonably short amount of time to make it frankly impossible to do an optimal job of fulfilling the brief which knowing me would have been something stupid like uh, make up a story about an egg getting divorced only you aren't allowed to use the letter g and every third sentence must contain a synonym for sneezed yes my writing workshops are less about viable creative exercises and more like the diktats of a mad sovereign but isn't all creative work when it comes down to it like trying to obey the orders of, I'm going to be charitable and say, eccentric and inconsistent genius. An idea pings into your head and it's like your inner attic dwelling weirdo is screaming at you, do this, make this thing I'm saying real, spend weeks, months, even years on it. A penguin becomes president. Well, that's the idea, what are you waiting for? Go! We're just like the medieval scribe or hard-bitten Victorian scrivener scribbling away by the light of a candle stub in fingerless gloves. Now, historically, when I've written, I've tended to have a sort of half of an idea begin to float round in my head, like a mood or a scene or a concept, and I'll ignore it for the longest time. Then eventually I'll be like, all right, all right, and I'll probably just do a notes splurge. So I don't write a plan, really. I just, I just try to explain my rough ideas to myself on the page. That might, write to one, that might run to one page or 30 before I begin but I just tried to dump everything that's been pinging around my brain, every idea I've had, every moment I've gone, ooh, and if that's the case, then this could happen. Everything that might serve as an inspiration or thing I might need to go away and research, if there's a snatch of dialogue or a cool line in my head, I'll pop that down. And what I'm doing usually is just putting it all into a file, 
like it's like I'm backing up my hard drive, right? So I don't forget ev everything. That, that so, so basically, what's in my head, um, it's, it's like I can take a rest. I don't have to keep buffering it in my memory banks. Normally, by that point, it's on my mind pretty much all the time. I'm just constantly thinking about it to the extent that I can't concentrate when people are talking to me in conversations. So the point is, I'm trying to make sure, one, I don't forget anything, and two, I can take a bit of a mental break. Like, I, I'm not trying to sort of self-mythologize here, but I have a slightly obsessive set of thinking styles. It's been a problem when I'm watching a TV show with a lot of episodes and plots, or if I'm playing a game, like I remember when I was playing the card game Netrunner, where you get to build your own deck, I, I sometimes ruminate on particular puzzles or plot holes to the point where I can't concentrate or any on anything or even sleep. I suspect this is one reason why I've been historically vulnerable to things like anxiety and depression. If you heard the neuroscientist Adam Green on the show just over a year ago, you might remember his saying, uh, the brain never gives with both hands. It's possible, and I'm just, this is wildly hypothetical, but it may be my neuroanatomical flaw is tilted just a little in favour of intensity and rumination, which has upsides and downsides. Anyway, once I've, I've dropped those notes on the page about what I've been thinking about, I normally switch to doing a bit of a proof of concept, you know, jumping in and trying to write a scene, probably being unthinkably conventional and, and just and beginning at the putative beginning of the story just to break the ice and see what it feels like to see if I can start to get a feel of, of, of a voice for the characters understanding that whatever I initially write will almost certainly end up being chucked because it's not until 15 to 30,000 words in the, the book really starts to come alive at least for me obviously that's a very loose heuristic otherwise all short stories would be necessarily inert but I start writing and just begin this sort of forced march into the book, hoping that doing so will start to reveal stuff. Hopefully, probably, I, I have an idea for some tentpole scenes later on in the book, some stuff I think things might be leading towards, some scenarios or showdowns or climaxes that the action uh, might reach at some point. Occasionally, I'll jump ahead and try to write some of those, as they tend to be the richest, and they t can really help me figure out earlier scenes, because you then know what you're trying to set up you know, what you're trying to tease, what you're trying to put the gun on the mantelpiece for um, so it can fire later on. But, 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 just because this is the way I've worked in the past, that's no reason to reify it into, quote, my way of working, end quote. For a start, it's never seemed to work very well, or at least I feel like I find writing novels harder than most authors I speak to. So I'd be concerned if there weren't some improvements I can potentially make. I don't want to like, oh, here's how, here, here's, here's my, because because that just becomes a form of cargo cultism, right? Where I go, this is the way it's done. Therefore, I need to repeat all the steps without questioning any of them because the exact formula it must be, you know, I might make things worse. Well, I might do. I might also make them better. Um, secondly, different projects, different stories sometimes benefit from different strategies. You know, I, don't, I think that's hugely uncontroversial the idea that you might take different approaches depending on the project so why not i thought uh, try planning this one that i'm going to do on the podcast out a bit more before i start you know see what happens aside from anything else that planning business is probably a little bit easier to do in audio form whereas actually writing scenes uh maybe is a little uh less conducive to 
me talking about it on the air. Third and thirdly, in the run up to recording this episode, right when I had the idea of attempting to do a novel start to end on the show, like I what, what I was quite excited about is I. I, I was very clear I wasn't going to use any of the novels that I've already got, like, sitting about that I've written 10,000 words. I thought that would be cheating, you know, and and kind of boring for me. And also I've kind of already gone off them a little bit. Maybe I'll come back to them later. But for now, I just feel like I've had a few runs at them. And so I'd necessarily be missing some stuff out, you know. I, and, and so I thought, what? Well, OK, let's just start something new. And I didn't actually have any ideas for what I was going to write. There wasn't anything buzzing about that I haven't written a single word on or, you know, that I haven't planned. So I was like, OK, what if I we come I come to the first episode and there's no idea bouncing around my cranium, bugging me, tugging at my sleeve, demanding attention? You know, I thought that was good, right? Like start from a clean slate. What I definitely didn't want to do was just pick something up that I'd been working on for a while or ask you to join me mid-flow. Or, you know, like I, I thought the worst case would be pretend like I'm generating ideas, but really I've already picked one. And I've got kind of a ringer and the whole thing's a bit of a setup. And then I go, oh, I like this idea. And then I pretend to discover it. And I, I'd look and I think you'd probably tell that that was artificial. And then I and then I kind of like look like, oh, look, I've discovered this thing. And, and it would just be a waste of time for me, It'd be a waste of your time. Uh just why why do that why go through that charade <laughs> what a weird thing to do you know it wouldn't be genuine and I didn't think it'd be very useful and I just don't think it'd be very useful for you if there's not an element of risk you know I, 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 I've got to be attempting something here that I might not be able to do because that's that's the fundamental thing that happens whenever you set out to do a novel you know you it might not work I, I feel like it's not creativity unless there's a chance that it might not work. What's going it will this make a good story? Well, if the story has never existed before, the true answer is I hope so, but I don't know. That's the essence of breaking new ground. That's the essence of creativity, is is that uncertainty that has to be there underpinning, I think, any creative project. So I thought, look, for the first few episodes, we'd cover idea generation. Now, my genre is fantasy, so I knew I'd be writing something in that zone. And I thought maybe if I gave myself permission not to do something terribly original, you know, if I did a loving pastiche where maybe the prose isn't the greatest, but it gets the job done, that'd be fun. And maybe I wouldn't agonise over it for days on end. You know, a cool fantasy yarn. I just kind of go for something squarely there. And I'm not, by the way, casting aspersions on commercial fiction i'm not suggesting it'd be a step down for me after writing what has often been called a literary fantasy even though my work has got battle nuns having a mixed martial arts fight on a frozen bridge and a dungeon crawl with guns and someone who's got a shape-changing arm with portal punch powers like i'm trying my damnedest to to cheapen this folks don't accuse me of pretension what what do i have to do <laughs> to, to be to be accepted into writing an adventure look i I read everything from whizzy-bangy comics and manga and children's books right through to complicated French experimental literature and modernist deconstructions of the novel that, frankly, I don't understand even as I read them. There is a place for all styles at my banquet table. But in this case, I want to write a yarn, an adventure. I acknowledge that may well be, for me, as difficult, if not more difficult, than writing literary fiction, but I thought maybe it would be a way of changing gear maybe hoodwinking 
my perfectionism by my thinking well this isn't you know this is a bit newer for me I don't know um but I, th- I thought that you know this might be a good way for me to, to 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 do to approach the problem and also maybe there are some more people have written about some structures or potential formulas for this and I thought that could be fun we can have a look at structure kind of with this with its skeleton out and, and really look at some prototypical assumptions underlying stories and I thought that let's do that let's let's write like let's write something that is a really pure story and and and, and you know I, I think that's probably a good place to begin because yes believe it or not everything that has come up until now until this point was only a pre-beginning or prologue I haven't actually got to the beginning of the episode oh prologues how do we feel about prologues you know that's a fantasy can of worms isn't it the prologue should you include a prologue good thing bad thing well actually from this point onwards I don't actually have to pronounce a final judgment on whether some element of story is is good or bad that would be profoundly silly the question I'm going to be asking in this project is is it something I love is it something I want to shoehorn into this project but why should you care about any of this dear friend because I'm talking about myself now getting very excited I'm aware that this is new territory for me and I don't know how entertaining it is as a podcast well I hope that during this process we can unearth some really useful strategies for coping with the various parts of writing a novel I'm hoping that by watching me flail and lollop about while talking it through you'll have some ideas sparked you'll see some ways you can apply a fix that I use to your own work in progress you might even want to take some of the questions I asked myself during it and some of the little exercises I set myself and and do them yourself I mean gosh you could even write alongside me you could have your own go at writing a fantasy yarn how cool would that be Um, you know not literally alongside me of course that would be uncomfortable for both of us not to mention currently illegal does that make the prospect more attractive perhaps the forbidden fruit of sitting in a tiny room next to a stranger typing in silence weirdly alluring no no it's not um but i invite you if you've got a project you're working on or you'd like to start something new to come on this journey with me i'm not going to set you any formal tasks it's not going to be like the writing courses where i put timers in the episodes otherwise that'll be really annoying for listeners who aren't writing um who just want to kind of listen to this while they're doing some washing up or going for a run or whatever i don't want you to have to skip 10 minutes of silence every time but um we'll see i might put a writing timer up at some stage i've threatened to do that for years but um, i might put up a separate one you know 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes with just like a gong at one end or something or with some ambience maybe i'll go outside for a walk for 30 minutes so you've got something to listen to while you write um that would be fun and most importantly, really, really easy for me to record. Anyway, so that was what I intended this episode to be. My starting from an absolutely clean slate, uh, tabula rasa, as the uh, people who want to say clean slate while alienating some of their audience often put it. So it's kind of like a stage dive. You know, you hear me find an idea from nothing, from literally nothing. We smash things together until we find something and then... We go on the long walk from taking that idea from story seed to finished manuscript. But I said in the intro that something went wrong. And that is that a couple of days ago, I wrote a dumb tweet based on a pun. I'm going to have to 
vaguely explain it now, aren't I? Well, certainly for context, otherwise it'd be really annoying. So I don't know if you've seen that meme where in response to someone saying something or doing something of note, something praiseworthy, someone responds in the comments, you dropped this, king, followed by a crown emoji. Or there'll be the phrase, you dropped this, king, uh, and there'll be a picture of Mario handing them a crown or, so, or whatever. Okay, so I suggested, and this is not in any way uh, funny or amusing, that someone could write a novel in the second person about a royal assassin called You Dropped This King. Because, you see, to drop someone, one of the meanings of that is slang for killing them, I think. Look, it wasn't my finest moment. Uh, I really need to get off Twitter. I'm awful at it. I'm awful at it as a platform. But after the tweet got zero engagement because it wasn't funny or good or worthwhile, I added on the end, in stand-up we call this a tag, I added on the end trying to salvage a, a serious craft point from the failed joke. I, 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 I commented, hmm, maybe it would actually fit better if it was a story about a king who gets killed then resurrected so he can seek revenge on the people who slew him. So the you refers to his assassins. You dropped this king. It's like the king is, is is talking to his assassins. So, you know, basically a fantasy kill bill. And I thought, yes, that title would technically fit, although the register's wrong. You know, for true generic fantasy, having king in the title is important, but quoting a meme is too cheesy and self-aware. But that was it. You know, it was just a, a weak pun um, that I was de desperately trying to garner some attention from, except my mind kept coming back to that idea after I posted it. You know, this fantasy yarn, which would be like a mix of Kill Bill and Hamlet, where a king gets assassinated, then gets brought back to life to seek his revenge. I mean, it's kind of pastiching something that was already an homage, like Kill Bill is already a pastiche of kind of grindcore revenge thrillers. So... It definitely hits the whole be extremely unoriginal angle I was going for. But I, d I just kept tossing about it about in my brain. You know, I was thinking of angles it would allow, you know, thinking of stories. Part of me didn't like the idea at all because it sounded a bit douchey and cynical and grimdark. I'm not a fan of grimdark fantasy at all. I, I find it just a bit tedious and try hard and predictable. And I, I, I know that that doesn't mean that people lots of people really enjoy it and that sounds like I'm judging them and I I guess I am a bit but that's on me not on them they don't have like they I, I think it's fine to just go well Tim it's all right to not like stuff but why do you have to make it about personal you know I, I just don't enjoy Grimdark and that's fine not everything is a commission for me personally and it's good that there is art out there that is not something that I particularly want to read because that is going to fulfill the needs of another audience, right? But just to me, it always sat... Grimdark is always just a bit like lad fantasy, you know, like fantasy written by someone who's played too much Grand Theft Auto. Just the tone that was coming out in my head. And this is a stereotype, but when I started thinking about this monarch who's come back to life and it's he's going to go and kill all the people who killed him and it's going to be terribly bloody and... I, it just ends up... I always think of the, this kind of grimdark tone that's that's like everyone's either a bastard or a sucker. 
and a, and a, a sucker who just a bastard who doesn't realise it yet. And I, I just don't enjoy reading those cynical stories. They feel nihilistic and cheap to me at le- least. And and as much as they often purport to be kind of challenging the established order, in the end, there's a mis- misanthropy there, you know, that, that's just like human beings are a waste of space. So you might as well do nothing. You're kind of justified in doing nothing because any attempt to change things only enfranchises another corrupt group, another group of of, of cynics, another group of exploiters. Human beings are intrinsically corrupt and foul and incapable of working together. Therefore, why bother doing anything? Actually, then, often grimdark kind of valorises characters who are horrible but kind of knowingly so they look after themselves maybe but they but they kill someone else basically they kind of get it and we go oh i'd like to be that kind of at at least they understand they're in their world they're acting optimally and i just think fuck that like and where's the stakes i don't care about any of these characters whatsoever there'll be some nice characters but they'll immediately get murdered and then you're just like, okay, yeah, I knew that was going to happen because it's grimdark. I know the formula for this. So why? And it's going to end in a messy draw because it always does. It always ends up in an ambiguous draw. So why am I reading this? And of course, there's loads of different formulas that we know exactly how it's going to end. So that's not a leg- that's not a, an actually logically consistent criticism, but that's just how I feel. I didn't want to write grimdark. I can't face it. Even though... And here's the kicker. I think there's a reasonable case that various people could make. You know, I often get described as writing dark fantasy. It's not... What I write is probably not a million miles away from Grimdark. I think there's some readers who might even read it down those lines. So, goodness. You know, maybe I write stuff that I wouldn't enjoy reading. There's a revelation for you. But, like, I was like, well, fine. You know, I, 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 I want to write something that makes my heart sing and it doesn't necessarily have to be a Pixar movie, but I just need a bit more nuance than that. And a yarn, an exciting story, a thriller can do that. But I was like, eh, well, fine, I'm thinking of a thing, but that's not how I was going to do this, this podcast. The whole point was I don't have an idea. I come to the first episode clean and we build it from the ground up. And now my bastard brain was, was sneakily trying to have an idea that it you know that just sort of and then grandfather it in before i start the race you know it started picking a favorite and i thought well that's going to skew the whole first episode if i'm quietly thinking of something now and generating ideas for it and then what am i going to end up just choosing that and then all the other stuff that i put in front of you is kind of a lie because i've already you know it's like a job interview where where the ceo his nephew is, is is going for the job and, and other people are forced to turn up for the interview but actually they've already internally decided who's going to I mean what's the point it's just a waste of everyone's time and I, I god I can't believe I'm saying this because it's like I'm cursing it but but this idea about a resurrected king was the idea I sort of felt weirdly inspired by like I feel I'm interested to explore what I could do with that story with that format the revenge plot And so I've been wrestling with this for a couple of days before recording today. And then I was like, wait a minute, this whole project is supposed to be about writing a novel with the door open, showing my whole process, being honest about it, being honest about not knowing what I'm doing a lot of the time. Most of the time, goodness knows, I'm not like 
being an, an author isn't like some aristocracy that I was born with. It's not a special bloodline. It's just something that I've turned up and said, I'm doing it. And then I just do it. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and, and I, I think also, if this is to be useful at all, I've got to be honest, when the process fucks up. And honestly, I, I've never written a book by sitting down with no ideas and just trying to generate random ideas with zero context. Never. That was going to be entirely a confection for this podcast. In fact, that would have been the most artificial thing, which makes no sense, right? So actually what's happened is beautifully, with a suspicious level of precise timing, my brain has gone, oh, you did a pun, eh? Have a fucking idea. Write this. So now I have something, a nugget, I could actually try expanding. And it seems like an opportunity it would be silly to waste. It hasn't been sitting around for ages, and now I'm digging it out for demonstration purposes. It's still barely 48 hours old at the time of writing it's still hot i still haven't sorry i said hot there as if i was like <laughs> with a slight kind of with a, with an overly kind of sexual yearning there that was just my stammer coming out i wasn't like it's still hot and um, i shouldn't have sorry it, it, it it's like i still haven't seen the flaws in it basically i'm still in the honeymoon phase uh, and the thousand and one stories already out there that do the same thing but better and actually Writing a fantasy novel based on a pun is not unprecedented. The author, Roger Zelazny, um, purportedly wrote his novel Lord of Light based on a pun. I'm not going to go into the context of it now because it's so much set up with like so little punch. And, and there's some debate about whether he's being genuine when he says that he wrote the entire novel started with the pun and then he had to develop a world where that pun, a scenario where that pun would be possible and then it made him start thinking about the building a world around it and that's how the novel began. But having read some of his other stuff and some of the cheesy... Like, he can be very serious sometimes and then sometimes he puts in some really... <laughs> some dad jokes, basically some little bits of metafiction, some things that I think, oh, Roger, what, what, you, oh, you, what are you doing to me? I feel like the whole, this whole thing was a setup. Anyway, you can go and read about that if you, if you just search Roger Zelazny, Lord of Light, pun, you can read the story behind that. But what I'm saying is like, novels have started from shitter ideas than a pun. And they've definitely, people have written very, Lord of Light is a fantastic um, in the sense of superlatively good fantasy stroke science fiction novel um, so yeah I, you know good things can come out of dumb ideas so uh, anyway why don't we here today on today's show do what I normally do when I have some idea that's bugging me which is drop it into a notes file the rough idea of what the story could be in my head so far then I'll identify some bits that need populating with stuff you know content ideas world building and then maybe we can do some of that idea populating together you know maybe I'll hammer out a few lists you won't have to sit through my writing um those I'll I won't make you sit while I'm writing the lists I'll just give you the results but why don't we take this raw chunk of idea and I feel a bit vulnerable because I've never let anyone in this early in my process ever so part of me is screaming it's shit. They'll think you've gone mad. They'll hate it. They already know the thing you're copying that you've forgotten you're copying and they're screaming plagiarist at the 
laptop, phone, etc., etc. You, you know, it's going to seem like a very, very thin gruel for me to be starting. You know, you, you might go, why have you picked that idea, Tim? It doesn't sound particularly original or good. Cool, we'll just try to make it original or good, right? But why don't we take this barely worthwhile thing? And I'm not going to spend the whole... I'm not going to spend this whole process apologising. Let's just say I made all my apologies now. Let's get on with making the story. But let's see if we can start fleshing out some possibilities, doing some character design, getting curious about it and making it good. There, right. What do you say? I don't know what I'm doing, but let's plunge into the fog together. And if I sound even more circumlocutionary than normal, and I have over the years received complaints from listeners that I waffle, which is accurate, um, that you know, that is the show, is me waffling. That is what it is. But if I'm sounding particularly waffly today, that's because I'm I'm nervous, okay? Because uh, on the one hand, I feel like I might be seen as arrogant. You know, me who's only had two novels published to be going, step inside the Imaginarium and see how the master crafts his dreams. You know, you might well feel like, who's this chuckle-headed knuckle fuck to be presenting himself as the model for novelists and I'm not doing that but I'm just aware it might seem like a striptease that nobody's requested you know like a striptease on the bus although the idea of being on a crowded bus does seem tantalizingly unrealizable at the moment so maybe that is slightly arousing anyway look um secondly this might go badly not spectacularly so. I, I'm unlikely to write something that's like so bad it's good, but I, it might just end up being a bit mediocre and I might not be able to finish it because other things get in the way. In fact, you know, I, I feel like it's probably going to be sort of not amazing. And while I'm always advocating, you know, make mistakes, go out there and try stuff, experiment, be curious, screw up, because that's how you learn. My actually doing that makes me realise it's kind of easier said than done. You know, I... I would like I would like to I'd like to do appear to be being vulnerable but then absolutely fucking knock it out of the park like like you watch me putting this story together and you're like Jesus Christ this is this is Tim's rough draft this is Tim being vulnerable he's like a god how is it this writing he's coming out with it does he not realize he's like a savantish mutant the, the level of quality I want you to I, I I would like to appear to be taking risks but then you're actually weeping like you stop listening to the podcast and your partner says uh, are you coming down for dinner um the uh, takeaways arrived and you're like just just give me half hour I can't I can't eat at the moment I just Tim Clare's been performing miracles like you like you open your curtains and you look outside and in the garden there's a there's a deer fawn how did it get there and it and it stops it's it's gnawing at a bush and it stops and it looks directly at you and this electrical jolt of connection goes through you and and, and you, well that can't be to do with the podcast it, the story I've been writing and the deer fawn you see are somehow connected and you feel at one with the cosmos and the universe and the, and the great cycle of creation and destruction. You, you suddenly all make sense. You can hear the music of the spheres. You can feel the earth turning and the alignment of the planets and you realise that it's all you and 
you are it and there's no disconnect. That's what I'd like you to get every time you hear me do some shitty exercise where I list names of chefs, of imaginary chefs. Um, and anything less than that is, is going to feel humiliating to me. Um, just so you know. So that aside, let's press on. Let's dive in. Let's try to make a story. So this idea I've got then is basically a king gets assassinated, comes back to life and seeks revenge. It must be fantasy in part because of the whole resurrection bit. I mean, even if you're Christian and, and believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you think he was mostly, apart from maybe Lazarus, um, alone in that. So that's the whole thing about it being a, a miracle. So this story must be perforce fantasy. Uh, Genre-wise, it's going to be high fantasy in the original sense. I'm, I'm uselessly trying to reclaim that term. You know, because it used to mean high fantasy. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'll probably ignore you because I'm arrogant. But, uh, I, th I believe high fantasy used to mean primary world fantasy. That is as opposed to low fantasy or secondary world fantasy, where, for example, someone slips through a portal from our world to another dimension. Or maybe there's our world, but with weird elements, you know, sometimes... Um, secret history fantasies where there's you know they're secretly they're you know abraham lincoln vampire hunter or whatever would be secret history i feel like buffy the vampire slayer is kind is is, is second is well i guess it's urban fantasy but um anything where our world could conceivably be happening alongside it or our world exists um or it's just a twist on our world is low fantasy Something that completely creates a separate world with its own separate history is high fantasy. Um, in a primary world fantasy, you're creating a whole place from the ground up. Although, you know, in this one, we're certainly going to be relying on tropes and standard stuff from the public domain. It's like you can still have high fantasy that has elves and goblins and orcs and all that kind of thing. It's just not set on Earth. Um, so... In our case, you know, we it's like we've bought a load of assets, a big asset pack full of graphics, and we're just going to drag and drop them into the story because we want to get this done quickly. This might be a good moment, actually, to bring up Michael Moorcock. Michael Moorcock is a fantasy writer, if you don't know already, and he was one of the authors instrumental in what was called the New Weird movement about 20 years ago. New Weird wasn't really, in retrospect, about anything. It was basically, Tolkien is bad, Mervyn Peake is good, and it was progressive a bit uh although still almost entirely white and a slightly cooler take on fantasy but michael moorcock's been hugely prolific and he wrote a bunch of pulp fantasy and crucially for our purposes he claimed to have written several novels in about three days each or at least a draft of those novels now some of those novels form his history of the runestaff series and to be honest i've read them and I absolutely believe him that they were written in three days. They are not great books. And that isn't me sneering, well, it is a bit, but I'm, I'm not like being, oh, where's the deathless prose? But they are workmanlike and patchy and cliched and implausible and a bit repetitious and samey. And the heroes, you know, repeatedly get captured by their enemies and their enemies tie them up. And then our heroes escape by loosening their bonds 
and freeing themselves, they untie themselves, and, and, and that happens multiple times. So there's no tension because their enemies are complete idiots and we keep having the same conflict and the same resolution. Like, it's not an exciting adventure on its own terms. It's not like a great pulp novel or a great thriller even, let alone a good fantasy novel. But it was written quickly, is the point. And further, Michael Moorcock set out how he accomplished that. Here's some excerpts from his explanation. I'll put a link in the to the full thing in the show notes so you can read his explanation if you want. Um, but I'll give you the meat of it here. So first of all, he says, um, quote, First of all, it's vital to have everything prepared. Whilst you will actually be writing the thing in three days, you'll need a day or two of setup first. If it's not all set up, you'll fail, end quote. So this is what they call in chef school. I've never been to chef school. I don't think they even call chef school chef school, but they call it setting up the mise-en-scene, making sure you know where all your ingredients and utensils, etc. are. So when you start cooking, you can just seamlessly reach for whatever you need. You can focus entirely on the act of cooking, not on, oh, fuck, do I have any nutmeg? Do I need to go to the shop for that? Oh, now the dumplings are boiling over, etc., etc. Um, Moorcock suggests the model of the, a quest story for the basic plot. Some people are after something, the Holy Grail, the Maltese Falcon, whatever, the hero wants it, they're all competing to reach it first. I'm not going to do that, obviously, although, to be honest, lots of stories fit into that model if you squint a bit. I mean, a revenge plot is mostly a quest where instead of a person trying to find a magic sword or whatever, a magic sword is trying to find a person and impale them. That's a quest, right? You know, instead of having to find the five gems that can stop the apocalypse, the protagonist is trying to find the five people who wronged them and kill them before they get away with their dastardly plan or whatever. So here's a few key tips that Moorcock mentions. Um, quote, you'll need to make lists of things you'll use. Do a list of coherent images. So you think, right, Stormbringer, swords, shields, horns and so on. Prepare a list of images that are purely fantastic, deliberate paradoxes, say, that fit into the sort of thing you're writing. The city of screaming statues, things like that. You just write a list of them so you've got them there when you need them. End quote. So he's saying do a bunch of the creative work beforehand. I've talked about this in my two writing courses, how fun and useful lists can be as an exercise to kick things off. Here he's suggesting that before we jump in, we should just fill our pockets with a bunch of stuff that seems interesting. Maybe some names of places, maybe some monster ideas, maybe some striking images or some cool objects, whatever. It's it's what like what we used to call when I worked in the video game industry, assets. And I think before the end of this episode, I'm going to have a crack at writing some list related to that, just generating the first hopper of random stuff for this putative, putative 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 story and i think before the end of this episode i'm going to have a crack at writing one of those lists just generating the first hopper of random stuff for this putative story i mean it's texture really he's talking about here telling details so you're not getting to a bit in the scene and going oh what does he find behind the door or where does she discover where she has to go next to find her uncle's murderer or whatever. You just look at the list and go, he opens the door and finds a 15-foot clockwork gorilla beating its brass chest plate before it launches itself at him. She smooths out the crumpled, blood-spattered note and sees her uncle was due to meet someone in the alley of impossible angles. That's in the mage's quarter, isn't it? And, and so on and so forth. 
that trick Moorcock mentions about deliberate paradoxes. Yes, it is a gimmick, but we need gimmicks if we're going to hammer out something at speed, something a bit pulpy, and it, it's a nice way of setting up contrast and intrigue. When I spoke to the neuroscientist Adam Green on this show, one aspect of creativity he mentioned was the ability to link two things that are semantically distant. That is, their meanings are far apart. So paradox, you know, apparent contradictions, you know, the cult of the shadowed sun, the burning sea, the dead orchard, the brotherhood of enemies, etc. It's just a neat naming convention you can use to bash out a bunch of hokey pulp fantasy names that sound pretty cool. You know, we're spinning a yarn here. It's all right. Don't have to use it for everything. But it's one example that will probably generate a few usable ideas. The imagery, Moorcock says, comes before the action because the actions are actually unimportant. End quote. The key thing for an adventure of this sort, sort is a time pressure. Quote, it's a classic formula. We've only got six days to save the world. Immediately you've set up the reader with a structure. There are only six days, then five, then four. And finally, in the classic formula, anyway, there's only 26 seconds to save the world. Will they make it in time? End quote. Moorcock suggests you aim to write a 60,000 word novel. Then you divide, divide that novel into four sections, 15,000 words apiece. Divide each section into six chapters. Each chapter, therefore, is 2,500 words. He suggests preparing an event for every four pages. I, I think after all that precision of 60,000 and then 15,000 and then 2,500 words, it's a bit annoying that Moorcock doesn't specify exactly how many words he he thinks a page is. I, I would have liked that. I know it's not his job to do all this for me. He's, you know, was just sharing some ideas, but it's not that I want to be spoon fed or anything, but I was like, come on, Michael, you were so close to the finish there. Just roll us over the line. Um, anyway, like every four pages, I don't know exactly. I, I feel like, ugh, I don't know. I always think of a page as being 250 words. So every thousand words, so at least two events per chapter. Sounds reasonable, right? Nonetheless, I love this idea of following a formula with precise word counts. I mean, what's a sonnet but a formula? What's a haiku, for fuck's sake? I know what a haiku is. I'm being rhetorical. You know, a haiku has syllable counts. You know, that. how more formulaic could you, can you get than a haiku? Why should, you know, this, this pulp novel that Moorcock's suggesting, why should it be any less than an art of an art form? Why, more to the point, should it be any less fun to write? Haikus are a hoot to write. I know most of the funny haikus people write are not terribly respectful to the tradition, but, you know, just writing... It's fun. It's cool. It's, it's exciting. They're often pretty easy to write if they're, you know, not necessarily great to read. Now, at the end of each chunk, each 15,000 words, Moorcock suggests you borrow from Lester Dent's formula. Lester Dent was a pulp novelist in the 30s for short stories and have some big twist, some revelation, some moment that upends our expectation. So some expectation that we've been carrying up until that point that is then proven to be wrong. Something the protagonist expected to find isn't there. Some new element, some new deeper tendril of the conspiracy is revealed. Okay. Moorcock says, quote, Very often a chapter is something like attack of the bandits, defeat of the bandits. Nothing particularly complex. You don't have any encounter without at least information coming out of it. In the simplest form, 
Elric has a fight and kills somebody, but as they die, they tell him who kidnapped his wife. Again, it's a question of economy. Everything has to have a narrative function. End quote. This is another way that having a time constraint helps as artificial as it is, because every time the protagonist tries something and fails, at the barest minimum, if you do nothing else, things still move forward because they now have less time and so their predicament has got worse. The story is still progressing even if they learn nothing and get nowhere. Obviously, in an ideal world, as Moorcock suggests, even failed attempts teach them something, give more information or up the stakes. But if you fail at all that, the time constraint is still there as your insurance policy that's doing a little bit of that. Now, we're getting into the glorious territory of no but and no and and yes but, aren't we? Does she manage to break in through the window? No, but she spots through the mucky pane there on a drafting table what looked like plans or blueprints of some kind. Whatever could they be for? Or does she manage to break in through the window? No, and she triggers an alarm. Or perhaps yes, but she triggers an alarm. Now, I wonder if Moorcock's suggestion that a chapter go attack of the bandits, defeat of the bandits, is a bit arse backwards. Because if we were being especially fiendish, wouldn't it be better for one chapter to end with attack of the bandits and the next chapter to begin with their defeat? In that way, if we sort of structure what he's suggesting as a chapter so it lays across chapter boundaries we can build in an artificial just one more page feel because every chapter ends on a cliffhanger i mean i'm just speculating here i've never written a proper fast-paced fantasy adventure before so you know fuck knows uh, the the honors and the ice house are fantasy and i like to think of them as adventures but the prose is baroque the pacing stately to say the least most of the time Anyway, uh, a lot of the scenes are about atmosphere rather than actively advancing the plot. And the structure is unnecessarily complex to the point that less charitable readers might suspect I'm deliberately taking the piss. Oh, and and finally, I I think this point is worth mentioning. Uh, Moorcock says, quote, when in doubt, descend into a minor character. So when you reach an impasse, and you can't move the action any further with your major character, switch to a minor character's viewpoint, which will allow you to keep the narrative moving and give you time to brew something, end quote. So that sounds like a pretty interesting way of constructing a story. Is it the only way? No. Is it the best way? Very unlikely. I'm not sure how you'd make the case for a best way of writing a story anyway, but one thing's for sure, you can be totally agnostic about how to approach writing a novel, but you still have to choose an approach. You can't opt out of having an approach, even if you go, oh, I'm not going to tackle it in any special one particular way. I'm just going to take it as it comes. That's still a choice and that's still an approach. You know, you've made a decision. You may be approaching the novel naively, but you're still following a bunch of assumptions and templates you might not fully understand or be conscious of. Um, In preparation for this episode, I've been reading some of another of Roger Zelazny's uh, novels. It's actually a series of fantasy novels. Um, Chronicles in Amber, um, which is on one level... It's pretty standard fantasy and magic with unicorns and sword fights and armies and foul beasts. On another level, it's a bizarro psychedelic romp through a whole cosmology of linked universes. It doesn't in any way fit the structure Morcock lays out, but the pacing is pretty much in that zone. You know, stuff keeps happening. Revelations keep happening. 
there's a lot of physical action and stuff. So hopefully some of his rhythm uh, might seep in. Although I'd write, like to write, keep my prose a bit more bare bones than Zelazny. He tends to be a little bit baroque with his writing. I mean, it's a narrator, but he's included words in there that I had to look up. And like my vocabulary is all right. And I didn't know what recrudescence meant. And I had to look it up. And I just think a, a non-trivial proportion of readers are not going to know what recrudescence means, even in context. So I'd like this novel that I write. That's one of my goals, and I'm saying it now, so I stick to it. To try and keep the language a, as simple as I can as many one-syllable words as I can. Not dumbing down, but just trying to use simple words when they will do and trying to make sure that I don't describe anything that isn't... the that, that every word counts. Just like economy would be really good because it's not something I'm good at, so that would be a nice challenge for me. So the basic idea I've got is this king, right, and he gets killed and so, somehow he's resurrected and he comes back to seek revenge. One thought I've had is that if he's after a series of conspirators or if somehow the trail leads him from person to person, that could serve as a, as a way of giving us a little guided tour of his kingdom. I see it as each distinct section or segment takes place in a distinct area so they all feel very different. So that's one thing I could do a list of, you know, different regions, locations that are interesting, distinct, that have some fantasy gimmick or magic related to them or quirk. I could also list potential conspirators, you know, their names or jobs and responsibilities, their ranks. I feel like getting a sense of who they are and what they do is more important than figuring out their specific names, which can come later, or at least that the names could be a separate list. I'd quite like to do some, a list of fantasy tropes that I like, you know, what do I actually enjoy seeing in a whiz-bang fantasy story and what to a certain extent, do I think readers tend to respond to? Those are distinct questions, but I could put them all in one list, a list of stuff I'd like to potentially include. Almost certainly won't be able to squeeze in everything I put in that list, but I could select for coherence after that. So a list of place names, guild names, criminal organisation names, company names, temple names, street names, all of that could be useful and probably fun to create, right? Um, I, I made a little bot on Twitter that generates students for a fictional mage academy. I don't know why I specified fictional there, as if I might have said mage academy, and you'd have thought, oh, it documents a real wizard school then. But one of the little substrings um, in that, that that bot has that means that occasionally it has to come up with the name of a gang, and it just does that by combining a substance with an object. So the Hessian Temple Clique, or the Brazen Fist Gang, or the Alabaster Dove Faction... Sometimes, as Moorcock suggested, you know, you come up with the names and the story comes out after or arises out of the names even. So I'd really love to do something where I take Roger Zelazny's idea of just like deliberate paradoxes and weird names and interesting images. So we're trying to make them concrete, at least so you can see the thing that it's describing um, to see if that suggests some zones. Some other immediate questions that aren't necessary, that could be used as inspiration for list um how does he come back to life you know who or what accomplishes it and why and crucially and this i think is the most important thing to generate some ideas on what are the limitations on his resurrection fantasy author brandon sanderson has talked about limits in sf and fantasy a lot i think he has given this subject a great deal of thought and talked about it a lot 
Uh, that sounds like I'm dabbing with Frank Perez. I also should say, and I think he's made some really great astute points on it. I, I didn't mean to say, well, he's talked about it a lot. It seemed like I was holding back from praising him there. Um, I just want to say, I think what he said about it, I found a really uh, germane to the subject and interesting and, and shrewd. I'm not <laughs> just saying... But I think he's but I think he's also thought about it a lot and that's how he got to that point. Um and he makes the case that what makes a story good when it comes to this aspect isn't the magical powers, a superhero's abilities or whatever, but the limitations and restrictions and costs of those abilities. You know, what can't Superman do? Because without spinach, Popeye is just a garrulous, unemployed chain smoker who beats the crap out of everyone. Not not to be a hyper weeb. I'm going to be a hyper weeb, but I think the manga My Hero Academia does this tremendously well with the various students' superpowers. So, like, there's this girl who can shapeshift to resemble other people, but she can only do it with a sample of their blood. So that's cool because we know she can't just be anyone at any time. Otherwise, the fact that she isn't constantly exploiting that power would be annoying, right? If she doesn't immediately use that in every situation it'd be advantageous in, then the limitation is the character her character is dumb uh and that's not very exciting so we have to give some restriction um and and what it means is it it means that we're not constantly reading every situation going is this person that x is speaking to a clone but it does mean if she's in a knife with a knife fight with someone and she loses, but during the fight she kind of like nicks them and some blood sprays out, we see that happen. We're like, oh shit. Now potentially she could infiltrate as this character later on. Did she win the fight? No, but she got a blood sample. So even though she's lost, the plot has been progressed, the stakes have been escalated. The good guys because she's an antagonist, um, the good guys are in trouble and the plot's moving. So, so I think those restrictions are always... One, when you resolve one of them, the solution is often ingenious and satisfying for the reader. It gets the reader thinking about it as well. I just think it's generally cool. And I, I tell you a bad example of this. This is a, a weird flex, as the kids are saying. I was watching the reboot of Postman Pat with my daughter. Uh, She doesn't watch it anymore, but about a year ago when she still used to watch it, um, Postman Pat's special delivery service. Now, if you watch the original episodes, because we went back and watched one of them, there he's just got a van and he drives around Greendale, this rural community in Yorkshire, I think it's supposed to be. And he's got a van. Everyone lives very far apart. And as he tries to deliver to them, there'll be like some sheep in the road blocking the road and he will have to wait. So that's a tension because he can't go. His van might break down. And because it's like the 1980s, he hasn't got a mobile phone, so he has to try and fix it himself. Maybe the radiators leaked and he has to kind of like jack the car um, up himself. I don't mean give it steroids. I mean use a jack to maybe he's got a flat tie he has to wait till someone else comes along to help him there's limitations in his powers right and it means that pat gets to be pretty competent right anything he can do to solve them to resolve those problems to move the sheep if he fixes his car he's shown competence himself um it means that 
he's quite a hero in those episodes, even though they're like profoundly boring. There's often like there'll, there'll be like 15 seconds, clear 15 seconds of shot where he gets to a junction, an empty jun- junction in the middle of the countryside, stops, indicates left. You hear the ticking of the indicator and then looks both ways, accelerates, turns left, drives out of shot, and then you get about three seconds of engine noise in a static shot of an empty, rural, bucolic junction with a dry stone wall and a sheep in the background, and that's it. It's very slow-paced, but he always feels like a hero. Like we, he, He's a very competent postman in those episodes, right? In Special Delivery Service, Postman Pat has a car. He has a van with GPS. He Not only does he have his original van, he seems to be working for a private contractor. contractor. He's got the Royal Mail van, but he also seems to be delivering parcels for something not a company not to do with Royal Mail. He's got a second van that has sprung like beach buddy it's like a four-wheel drive car with sprung beach buggy style suspension that when he gets when a road's blocked he'll just peel off like through a gate go off road go through fields it can go through ditches it can it can jump ditches we see it doing a jump when in the opening credits um in addition to that he's got a helicopter with GPS and uh, we see we see his helicopter outpacing a train in the opening credits so now all the things that limited him in the originals it's like and he and he's still only serving a small rural com- community by the way so there's absolutely like like the challenges that face him have not got any harder it's still what he was facing in the 80s with only his van. But now he's got a team supporting him. He's never out of GPS range. He has a mobile phone to constantly contact them. Um, and he has a helicopter and off-road vehicles. M- multiple sets of equipment. And often his only responsibility of a day is to deliver one parcel. And so now he's got superpowers and very few limitations and it is crap. And what's worse, what's really bad is the only way they can then create tension is just to have Postman Pat be shit at his job. The number of episodes where he drops the delicate thing and it smashes and he has to, his, then his job, it's, it's, the, the delivery is late every single time as well to create tension. And it's late because Pat fucks it up. He crashes, he breaks the the statue, the sculpture that he was going to deliver, and he has to make one himself. They never complain. He smashes the, gl- the stained glass window he was going to deliver just by being shit and it falls out of his van. He stops to see someone for coffee or something. It's so He's so bad. He's like, they've had to make him a complete idiot to compensate for his powers. So this is what we're... You know, this is what we're saying here, I, I think, is like, if you want your characters to be competent and exciting, if you want your villains to be interesting, 
you have to put limits on their powers. Otherwise, the only way round it is to have the bad guy lock the good guy uh, in a doom machine, assume their death and then walk off without killing them. They have to make dumb mistakes. The the good the 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 goody has to not use their powers in ways that are obvious you know if the, it, it, you know it's like resurrection powers and then they bring someone back to life and then they never use that ability again i think like the harry potter novels i've never read them but my understanding is they often introduce bits of magic that are then characters never think of using those, those same spells later on and that, please harry potter simps don't write to me saying how the harry potter books are really good if you love them good for you be happy i just know that i wouldn't be able to read them without losing the will to live anyway actually you know the more i think about it as much as i wanted to make my story make it seem kind of cool by saying that the model for it was kill bill i think actually this resurrection plot the king gets killed and then comes back and tries to um right the wrongs that faced them is probably less kill bill and more all dogs go to heaven, Don Bluth's flawed but entertaining late 80s Burt Reynolds vehicle in which an irresponsible roguish dog called Charlie Barkin, his surname there is a pun on the vocalisations dogs make to communicate, is bumped off by his rival, Carface. It's, it's, again, it's a pun on Scarface. He, he's called Carface because he likes cars. Um, but then... Charlie steals a pocket watch from heaven that allows him to return to Earth. Uh, The limitation on Charlie's resurrection is that, yes, you can be resurrected, but you can never return to heaven if you choose to. And if your pocket watch runs down or gets broken, you die and go to hell. But it's um, heavily implied that as long as the pocket watch survives... Charlie is is kind of invincible. Like, there's lots of attempts on his life. Um, I mean, we don't get see him, you know, get ripped in half and regenerate like Wolverine or get run over by a freight train, but he basically survives every attack on him in a way that maybe leads us to conclude that it's the pocket watch that's his weak spot. It is, it is not an amazing film. And anyone who says it is probably hasn't seen it in 30 years, and it has lots of bits that feel like they were taken from different drafts, but its central premise, yes, you can come back to life, but you forego an eternity in paradise. Yes, you are safe from harm, but only if you protect this one magic object. Sets up a nice dilemma at the end of the film where Charlie has to choose between saving his pocket watch uh, and saving a little girl from drowning. Does he choose selfishness or altruism? Well, Of course, as you've probably guessed, he chooses selfishness and the child drowns. And at the end of the movie, we see him smoking a big doobie and saying, ain't I a stinker before winking at the camera, iris out, comedy trombone slide. No, no. And actually, I'm just jesting. But you but you see how the limitation uh, in his resurrection, he doesn't just come. He doesn't go to heaven. So go. Can I come back to life? Yes, of course. Um, That limitation becomes an engine for plot and incident and tension. Powers are cool, but they only drive the story if we know what a person can't do with them. So I'm going to stop recording for a second to actually do some writing. I'll attempt one of those lists. I'll give myself 10 minutes. I'm going to start a timer. Then once that's done, I'll get back to you and share some of what I've written. I'm not going to leave a 10 minute gap here, but if all this talk of lists has got you inspired, don't in any way feel obliged, but 
you are more than welcome to join me. If you're working on something at any stage in the process and, and, and you want to generate some material, feel free to pause this for 10 minutes and write a list yourself. And then when we get back after, I'll put in a little audio break, a little musical sting of some description. We can compare notes. So um, what should I do for my... Uh, my list let's see because these can be either names and objects you know concrete lists like that generating sort of stuff that has flavor and detail that then ideas and context uh, sort of naturally stem from or they can be ideas lists in the sense of what well, well let's take this resurrection business since i've been farting on about it for a while let's say this king comes back to life what could be some restrictions or limits on his power what can he and can't he do maybe i'll do that as a list. And by the way, if you haven't got anything to write about, if you're not working on a project, you can always just generate some ideas on the thing I'm doing as well. And just we can compare notes afterwards. Now, these are mostly, I guess, going to be mutually exclusive ideas. I already had some ideas about what the limitation might be. But for the purposes of this exercise, I'm just going to drop my preconceptions, stop censoring for quality and go buck wild with the understanding that all of these ideas might be wrong. They might be ones I don't end up using. Um, but this is a good way of getting my brain into ear kind of like cleaning the priming the pump and signaling to myself that i'm in idea generating divergent thinking mode okay so i'm going to do 10 minutes on ways the king's resurrection might work with limitations costs possible rules you can do a list on whatever you like i'll be back once i'm done Sitting in the park, filling in consumer questionnaires Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nan She's drinking Ribena, my nan doesn't like a Ribena Sitting in the park, filling in consumer questionnaires Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nan She's drinking Ribena, my nan doesn't like a Ribena Sitting in the park, filling in consumer questionnaires Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nan She's drinking Ribena, my nan doesn't like a Ribena Sitting in the park, filling in consumer questionnaires Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nan She's drinking Ribena, my nan doesn't like a Ribena Sitting in my park, filling in consumer questionnaires. Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nappy. She's drinking Ribena. My nan doesn't like a Ribena. Sitting in my park, filling in consumer questionnaires. Looking at my phone, looking at pictures of my nappy. She's drinking Ribena. My nan doesn't like Ribena. And I'm done. Okay, so it turned out that 10 minutes was not enough for me. So I started the clock again and did 20. I think because I, I was writing little explanations to myself, I imagined it as a list, but it didn't actually really turn out to that because I, I wanted to write notes to myself. So I, rem I remembered why I thought the thing, I think. Maybe, maybe I'm a bit self-conscious because I was going to read it out to somebody else. So I was aware that I couldn't write it in entirely telephrastic pidgin English. But 
uh, anyway, that's how it turned out. And I think that's normally how I do it. So maybe I'm re reinventing my method. Let, well, well, you know, look, we're discovering this together. Um, but this is definitely close to how I would normally work, um, which may be a bad way. And maybe I'm going to discover some problems with it um, and refine it a little bit. It's how I've worked in the past, at least. Not necessarily saying it's a good way, but maybe we'll figure out better ones as we go. So here's what I got. If you remember, I'm trying to come up. Of course you remember. Like, of course, like, of course you remember. It would. I mean, I. You must know what we were doing, right? I, I, I was trying to come up with restrictions or costs for this uh, king coming back to life. Uh, number one, time. Okay, so this is the most obvious one. He only has five days of renewed life before he dies again and returns to the underworld. It could be even shorter. I wrote like twenty-four hours, or that maybe he gets a very short amount of time, but he can increase it by. Uh, through some cost, you know, he, he, he comes back and then he, he can only extend his time by taking a life, for example, maybe 24 hours per life. You know, maybe he was brought back to life by a sacrifice. And if he kills, so that was a cost of one life for 24 hours. And if he kills, he can he can get another day. So at first, you know, he might be motivated. He might, you know, the king might be quite, you know, not a particularly vengeful person, but um. You know, if he wants to see justice done, he might have to make increasingly difficult decisions. You know, say he's not intrinsically keen on killing, but, you know, he and, it, and you know, the first time he does it, it might be somebody who's sort of like we feel like maybe justice is being served there. But but as time goes on, you know, what if he can he knows if he only had a little bit more time, he can prevent a far greater tragedy by killing someone and getting 24 hours. You know, would he kill them? You know, if the person's innocent, maybe, but he knows thousands of innocents will die if he doesn't. It's extra time. What's the moral? That's an interesting moral dilemma to me, maybe. Um, does his decision to kill, you know, make him a darker character within each choice? You know, that's a kind of, I guess it's a kind of Breaking Bad star series of dilemmas. Time restriction, uh, it, however it comes out, does mean that the tension keeps increasing. And if, if there's a way of resetting that time, then that has to create its own problems, right, each time. But but it means that, you know, the only downside of this is that maybe it's a bit done. Like time restrictions, that because they're so good for doing it, for creating suspense, um, they're a bit familiar. But I did say I wasn't going to really worry about making this too original and we can tweak time restrictions to try and make them a bit to give them some freshness later on could be that he has to make a deal to come back uh so the sort of cost here is obligation that's the coin of the realm so you know he gets to be resurrected but um in the afterworld he made a deal with some entity de or demigod who wants something who wants you know a bargain there's the faustian pact you know say you can go back but I need five deaths in return. You have to slay your murderers or this entity wants him to do it to correct an ill. Maybe it's a, a benevolent deity who's using him as an instrument of justice or holy righteousness or something. Um, maybe he's resurrected by the god of, you know, a foreign nation of like the, a rival power of the enemies of his kingdom, you know, uh, uh, you know, or a deity associated with them or, or or just by their people you know and and knowing that he will sow discord within within the upper rulers of his nation you know he's going to destabilize the nation as it is now by going back to right a wrong so that's why they want him 
That's why this god of a foreign power uh, wants him to do that is because it's going to in some way or you know why uh, sort of like necromancers from the enemy nation might resurrect him knowing that he will want to go back and seek what he sees as justice but at the same time it's going to destabilize the region and then the and the restriction might include something like the demigod that resurrected him or whatever can end his life at any time if he displeases them that could be interesting um the restriction could be distance you know he's resurrected but he can't travel further than within a mile of his resurrection or he cannot travel farther than the castle or can't leave the walls of the city or the kingdom could be that he has to remain at all times within x distance of a particular object his soul is now bonded to he could be bonded with an object like a candle or something that could be sort of magically enhanced or something you know let us say that the candle is lit and as long as it continues to burn he will still be alive which introduces both a time restriction and a danger in terms of this physical object um, i don't know whether he would whether in that case he would be better off carrying it with him which seems like a bit of a liability or, or sort of leaving it somewhere to burn um Perhaps if he carried it within a lamp, he'd get around some of the limitations there. So he can't fall into water if he had that um, or have someone steal it or whatever. Presumably not everyone knows that that's what's keeping him alive. But, you know, maybe if that's what happened, if he was being kept alive by a can candle, then a bit like with Charlie Barkin's pocket watch, you know, he's otherwise invulnerable. Maybe, uh, maybe his body is you know, sculpted from wax or tallow in this um, particular example, you know, so he gets stabbed and the sword just sticks in him or something. So he's like a kind of living um, candle in a sense, but he's bound to the candle and, you know, so he's uh, a bit like a vampire in the sense that in one essence he's invulnerable, but he's also in danger if anyone finds out his kind of like secret weakness because they can take him out as easy as sort of blowing on the candle and blowing it out also i like the idea that this is a visual metaphor that as his time runs out um his waxen form if i went with this would sort of start to begin to lose shape like a, a guttering candle you know it's harder for him to hold himself together he begins to drip and run so he looks less and less like a human more like a kind of melting waxwork his feet splodging on the floor as he walks you know he, he has to concentrate to literally pull himself together he could come back as an insubstantial ghost as a spectre or phantom I, I suppose in in that sense i would be uh borrowing from the playbook of um bill cosby vehicle ghost dad um which is about a ghost dad um so his limit in that situation is that he can't grab someone maybe he's invisible to lots of people except like a certain uh i don't know why i chose ghost dad and not the movie ghost um i think it says something about my cultural reference that i would yeah reference bill cosby above above the actual classic movie ghost why would i append dad on the end of that which has the same more or less limitation that someone is invisible eventually works out how to how to move stuff but can only be seen by one person um and so is kind of amazingly sort of like able in terms of infiltration in terms of solving a mystery and that's somebody who you know 
is has been sort of bumped off and is coming back to right or wrong yeah uh ghost is a, is a great example of this except a bit more kind of sexy but um it's it's got that same it's got that same thrust right and then the limitation is he can't be seen he he has to uh he can only be it can only be sort of understood by one person, a medium who doesn't especially want to help him and is known up until then as being a fraud. Um, so, and isn't especially powerful herself. So then you've got a really interesting dynamic where they can see loads and they're almost like a kind of Cassandra character. I can't remember the name of um, the protagonist of Ghost, but like he he can find out loads of stuff, but he can't completely act on it uh and so there's this kind of powerlessness as he's trying to use the limited powers he has and maneuver people and communicate um you know perhaps he you know this king would be able to might be able to talk to people or not you know might be able to you know blow on things blow, blow out uh candles again i'm not sure how that would that would work but um there's so there's clear limitations has the advantage of being able to pass unseen move through walls etc so might be able to have the ability, as in Ghost, to temporarily possess people. Um, might be able to see some things on the spiritual or astral plane that normal, alive people can't. You know, there might be some points of entry or times of entry that are easier than others. Um, um, if, if they were able to possess someone, I suppose that there would have to be a limit on how long they could do it and who they could do it to and whether that person is able to resist some rules around that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe if the possessed person touches something silver or crosses running water or one of those traditional things then the the, the 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 ghost is cast out or whatever maybe he comes back but the cost is the kingdom is dying you know or plants around him die people people sicken and he realizes that in in having returned he's kind of feeding off their energy this kind of necromantic imbalance maybe his presence weakens the barrier between life and death you know he's pushed through but his consent to resurrect this is a bit like the kind of later series of, of Buffy um, makes it easier for un, other undead zombies ghouls etc to cross over and the whole thing was kind of a trick to open the kingdom to an undead plague so now he has two problems to cope with maybe being resurrected costs a huge amount of money that could be another literal cost you know there is he's been resurrected by a, a, a clique or a guild or whatever who are pumping gold into paying for extremely expensive arcane ingredients uh, reagents and unguents etc to maintain his resurrection so he's effectively bankrupting the exchequer or, or, or running up a, a vast debt to his estate um, just by being alive while he does this could be that he can only move around when he's resurrected you know at night or in shadow uh, daylight destroys or incapacitates him he might have been resurrected as an actual vampire and have some of the weak weaknesses and powers of vampires could be he can't go indoors maybe ghosts or the dead aren't allowed inside houses that's a kind of continuing the vampire theme he might be barred from certain hallowed areas maybe the kingdom has suffered undead plagues in the past you know this isn't the first time they've faced the dead maybe you know his chief fight his chief like military battles have been against undead hordes and now he's one of them uh the thing he's fought against all his life and so it's actually pretty well warded against them and he now finds himself having to side with his old enemies to defeat a third 
foe within um, could be that he's resurrected in the body of an enemy you know that this isn't so much a resurrection as a reincarnation or he's sort of somehow allowed to use their body as a vessel or he comes back as as one of them and may, maybe of you know his his, en his enemies that his traditional enemies um or maybe of the caste or nationality of the enemy his kingdom has been fighting so he can no longer access loads of the places he once knew because he doesn't look like he used to though he you know he's he's un unrecognizable to his former friends so i guess the advantage would be he can get close to them without revealing his secret but now he's forced to empathize with um the opponent that's a kind of that's a kind of was used i guess in a little, uh, to an extent, that was the 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 trope that was used in Avatar. Um, although in Avatar it was done very problematically. Um, what if he can jump from body to body? So he's a kind of like wandering uh, force of will or spirit, um, but he can possess people. Um, but he stays in their body. But he dies if he can't find another body to jump to when if the one he's in gets killed so he has he can leap out but if he were out of the body for more than 30 seconds or something he kind of like will dissipate and fade or be taken back to the underworld so he can never be found out in in a body he's got to continually switch um and the bodies but maybe not to make it kind of too op the bodies he takes over age and decay rapidly the problem with this right as, as exciting as that sort of sounds to me, um, it would make it very easy to kill his enemies in this case, right? Because he just has to get close to them, switch into their body, and then they're just going to age very rapidly and die. So it doesn't necessarily make the revenge part very... Might be a good power for some kind of story, but um, for an antagonist who is very, very powerful, but I'm not sure for a protagonist, it, and especially what we're talking about, it, it might... It's quite good in a... So what's interesting about it, of course, is is if he doesn't particularly want to kill lots of people and he his only way to move through the city is to take over other people's bodies who age really rapidly. He's basically killing a lot or ageing a lot of innocence. And that must feel pretty bad to him, right? So he's having to make some... So there's, a, there's some nice dilemmas there, potentially could be that his resurrection costs him his immortal soul so this is all dogs go to heaven again so he knows when he dies now he will forfeit his soul to eternal servitude or be consumed by demons or whatever so he's made this kind of bargain this dark bargain but he doesn't care because he wants revenge and to right the wrongs so that has a yeah i mean that's it's got some cool stuff in the background to it but um i suppose it doesn't create a huge tension within the story it's just something he's decided to do it explains why not everyone would decide to do it um and maybe as the story goes on if he's trying to find a way out of the contract he's signed that could be a tension could be that when he that he in his resurrected form he's vulnerable to mirrors there's a special vulnerability he's got you know mirrors harm him or that his true nature is visible in mirrors so if anyone were to glimpse his reflection they'd see that he was you know a dead um what if he finds out i don't know he can no longer stand music you can tell at this point you know i'm starting to i've exhausted the obvious and i'm starting to go into some quite weird directions but this is how list writing should work right or most of these ideas i'm going to chuck away uh i think it's worth just going through them uh so what if you know he's now vulnerable to music 
the old songs he he took for folk music that he heard around the kingdom are actually these passed down wards against vengeful spirits and now that he's come back as a ghost or a you know you know or he's been resurrected he realizes that they sort of nauseate and repel him in his new form that the kingdom used to uh, you know, ward away evil spirits with these songs, and over time they've been handed down, and people have forgotten what they were originally written for. But now he feels sick, and whenever he hears music, he can't come near it. Could be that he needs to feed regularly. That's a classic one with vampires. He needs a tremendous amount of food, or he becomes weak. He's ravenous, almost insatiable. I don't know what that food could be, whether it be actual flesh or just food or some specific magical thing. Um, it might be like there's a specific magical item, a gem or locket or crown that keeps him alive. He might anchor him to the mortal realm. So that's the, kind of the candle thing again. I'm kind of repeating myself at this stage. And I think that's where I, my time was up. So out of those, honestly, because uh, we kind of said I wasn't going to worry too much about being original. I do like the time limited ones that he's got X amount of days of resurrection before he goes back to the underworld forever. Um, I like that aspect because despite not being very original and one thing I said right from the beginning was we were going to free ourselves from the tyranny of having to be original it is at least very clear to the reader you know it's not hard to explain you have five days you have a day whatever it's similar to what Moorcock proposed it's also it also means any setback affects the protagonist because he's already died right so the fail state has to be not oh he might die it's already happened the worst has happened right his fail state is he doesn't manage to get revenge. He doesn't manage to solve the mystery of who killed him and why. He doesn't avert their plans. You know, maybe they're corrupt and they're planning to take over the kingdom. It's going to hurt lots of people in the kingdom and the king cares about that. So that's the fail state, not dying especially because they've already faced that. Um, so every wrong turn, every delay brings that closer and potentially raises tension if he has a time-limited resurrection. He can't spend ages staking out his targets he's got to find out now he'll have it also motivates him to take bigger risks than maybe a nor an ordinary person would because he's forced to actually those risks aren't dumb they're the only thing he can do given that he doesn't have time to play it safe i also quite like the idea of his sort of being made out of wax out of those like looking back I i've been playing a game called monster train where you're trying to ride a train across the underworld to relight the fires of hell that have been put out by the forces of heaven. Hell's literally frozen over in this game and your demons being opposed by heaven carrying this kind of spark, this thing called ember that you're going to use to relight the fires of hell. And the reason I bring this up is that one of the factions you can play is called the Melting Remnant. And they're all sort of weird humanoid creatures made out of candles. And some of them have got burning wicks and they're kind of dripping with wax. And, and and after a certain number of rounds, their wick burns out and they extinguish. And I'm not saying that this king should come back with a, a little flame on the top of his head. Uh, but I do like the creepiness of wax. Uh, Gareth Hanrahan did a, had, a, had some nice enforcer characters, some grunts in his novel um, called uh, Tallow Men who were actually uh, sort of, they they were humans that had been dipped in wax and made into these kind of sen burning sentinels. Um, but, and they were terrifying. <laughs> um, but I like the idea 
of someone who's maybe more like less like a living candle and more like a kind of waxwork. Uh, but I like this idea of a slowly burning down candle. And I idea that like the idea that the king has maybe been brought back not in his original body, but in this sort of meticulously crafted waxwork simulacrum um, into which his soul has like it has been encased. And it, so it looks realistic as a, gla a glance. It would look to the casual observer. This obviously it can move unlike kind of wax, but it looks like a person. But it's vulnerable to heat, maybe. And it sort of slowly deteriorates as time passes and the magic begins to, to dissipate. The magic holding it together and animating it begins to uh, dissipate. So he has a clear deadline, but as the clock's running down, you know, by the by the very end, maybe like half his face is sloughing off and he's staggering and oozing. Also, you know, that could be cool, right? It's a bit grim and it puts more pressure on him. But it also he might find that under those conditions of dissolution you know like when as you know he's got the you know the body's starting to fall apart there might be some things that also allows you might actually be able to learn to flow under a door as liquid wax or through a portcullis and reform on the other other side like in his final state he might be more like a kind of oozing clay monster you know forming big wrecking ball fists or just you know like with his sword is sort of half absorbed in one of his limbs you know he's like this melted wax and grotesque I don't know whether it adds anything to make him have to carry or otherwise look after or consider a candle burning down over five days or however long it is. It, I mean, it feels a bit like the equivalent of making him carry like a layer cake or a tray of champagne flutes. I'm a bit worried that it might be a bit silly or slapstick. Like, what does it intrinsically add to the plot? Because it could be like, as in all dogs, which is what I call all dogs go to heaven i just shorten it like that because i reference it so much in my day-to-day -day life could be like a literal pocket watch right uh the, but one serving the additional function of showing him how, precisely how much time he's got left before he melts down to nothing but i guess the the candle does that and i think it's, if you're going to make him out of wax it would be a shame not to use a candle because he can look and, and see oh it's a quarter burned down it's halfway burned down etc it's like an it is a nice visual metaphor having a candle i, I guess He'd have to put it in a lantern or, or, or something or keep it from getting blown out by the wind. I mean, he could even be sort of hollow, like have an empty chest cavity and the candle's in there. So when he breathes, it's like he's feeding the flame oxygen and he could open up his chest maybe to see it. Um, or it's just an open nook. I mean, that sounds kind of neat, but I don't I don't like I like the idea of a visual metaphor of the candle. I like the idea of him having that and looking at it and worriedly checking it. Um, if he hides it somewhere, it's a bit weird that he has to, he'll have to come back just to look at it, which feels like a, a wet hassle and a waste of time. If he carries it around, it might be from a plot point of view, a little bit of a faff. I don't know. I don't think there, I mean, it'd have to obviously be a magical candle as well at some level, because I don't think there's real candles that are you know portable that burn for five days so you know it has to have some mystical element probably harder to blow out than a normal candle but on the other hand you know if he's completely made of wax and the candle is either separate or something that was lit in the underworld and is slowly burning down like i do like the idea that he gets some he's invincible except to extreme heat you know his main problem then is is getting delayed because he has a time limitation if he's invincible you know like 
that we can have some cool scenes, especially in his first fight where he gets confronted and he realizes he can get stabbed and the knife just sticks into him. It doesn't hurt. It's just like plunging it into some wax. You know, he can get his limb hacked off and like later on he'd be able to like retrieve it and stick it back on. If he just heats up the stump, it will kind of glue itself back on. That's cool. You know, he could even, I'm thinking if there's part of the kingdom that's like a floating island. I've had that in my head as like maybe one location just because I always like floating islands. Because I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of this story already as like a video game. You know, if one of the locations is a floating district and he has to, once he's visited the person there, he has to get back down to the ground world quickly. Like if he's invincible, he can do cool things like resolve a problem of speed and escaping from a floating island by just stepping off the island and dropping through the sky and hitting the ground splat you know he mulches on the ground but he's made of wax so he can kind of just slurp back together that seems to me like a neat way to get down fast that for all the restrictions of this form that there are also some cool abilities that he has where he can use his ability to not be badly injured by you know bludgeoning by falls by being whacked or crushed he can use that to to solve something that you wouldn't obviously like it's obviously an advantage in a fight but the idea it's it gives you speed because you can just dr- jump off something instead of uh catching an airship down or something that seems to me like and it, and it, you know it, it may be that you know there's an he, he he's killed the person who's district that is the kind of like character in that area and there's now an airship embargo the docks are locked down they're searching for him everywhere and he gets to just there's no way to fly back off the island and he just jumps off so he he's resolved like a big problem this kind of cliffhanger moment this end of a chapter thing where like there are guards all around the docks they're searching everyone all the airships are locked down there's no way for him to get back time's running out what's he gonna do and he then he's being chased and he just runs to the edge of it and he just jumps because he can do that now and that's like a nice that seems to me like to be a cool way for him to resolve that and then he you know smashes into the ground or through a roof or like through a great glass panes of some uh i i don't know like there could be some hot house and he smashes through the roof of that after a long free fall or we see like one of his severed hands like dangling in a tree bits of him everywhere as he's blown apart and then they all sort of shuffle back together and he gradually reforms himself and he might not know if he can survive that but it'd be cool right um and maybe once he's reformed himself there's some cost to that like he's either landed somewhere that puts him in trouble or he's lost one of his hands or when he puts himself back together it's not quite right and he now finds it difficult to walk in the same way or something you know we could make a cost for that uh so there's a there's a catch but i think that could be really cool so so we can also get the sense you know in that situation if they throw him into a fire or furnace or he falls into one that would destroy him as well he'd just melt down so you know and it doesn't make him super strong just because he's made out of wax it doesn't mean that he can just kind of like take on 20 people at once so he only needs a few people to tackle him a few guards and they can just disarm him and lock him in a cell and then he would be stuck if he was just locked up handcuffed or whatever he can't act and then if his time will 
run out. So there's like loads of peril, even if he can be stabbed without dying. That's not necessarily an issue because if he can just be locked up or detained or whatever or delayed, that's enough for him to fail. Um, and if he can't find clues, if he can't get access to certain places, um, if he can't, if the trail goes cold, then he's going to run out of time and he's going to die. That'll be the end. So brute force is is is, is going to be only the answer in like a very very few um, cases. He needs information, which isn't necessarily easier because you can be stabbed, right? You know who killed him? Who was in on it? Why did they do it? What's their plan? How can he stop them? So, I mean, I must admit, I'm I'm sort of excited about this. I'm also experiencing mild feelings of doubt, but right now because it does sound like what I'm proposing is rapidly becoming all dogs go to heaven meets mannequin late eighties cult classic movies was not the vibe I was originally going for, but here we are. Obviously um, this process is king into some form formative developmental era from my childhood. Now there's more stuff I could do here. You know, I think an open question is I've been talking all the time about a king and he does he need to be a king? Is there any reason why this protagonist needs to be a man? I'm pretty dead set on their being royal, of having achieved their position by birth, or at least not by merit, because as the idea started bouncing around, I felt like it could be a nice way to talk about royalty and power and all those sorts of things. My daughter watches a lot of Disney movies with princesses in and people who are given their positions by virtue of parentage. And of course, the films never question whether that's a good or ethical method of governance. We certainly see uh, when a sort of evil ruler takes over, how it can be bad. But the assumption is that the problem isn't monarchy per se, but just having a bad monarch. What we need, what, what, what kingdom needs is to make sure they have a kind of strong shepherd. An ethical, if you have an ethical king, you'll be fine, right? But it'd be too obvious, I suspect, if I made this character, you know, like a military dictator who gets assassinated and come back. I mean, a king essentially is a military di di dictator, but just with better PR, you know, they have a, a heavenly mandate. But I don't think anyone would be particularly sort of feel surprised if I just went, hey, Here's a story about how military dictators are not a great idea. I just feel like readers would say, yeah, I kind of you're kind of pushing an open door there. Maybe with kind of kings within a fantasy setting where our guards a bit down. Um, could I make anyway? Sorry, the, the, the main question was of gender. You know, could I make does it matter? Could I make the protagonist a queen? Certainly, you know, obviously you dropped this king would no longer work as a title, but I don't like that title anyway. So at the moment, their gender is undetermined. It's interesting to me that it still feels like male is the default and to choose to, and I'm making huge air quotes here, switch them to female is a, is a deliberate political choice. Uh, certainly many, many readers still approach the texts assuming a male default which seems bananas in this day and age but there it is in my experience if the protagonist is female but allowed to participate in stereotypically patriarchal acts of violence then many readers and critics reflectively interpret that as a positive thing uh and a kind of a feminist statement in some way and they tend to be more forgiving of the violence as well like they tend to see it in terms of the reviews i've read anyway a sort of like less morally objectionable weirdly I, I i certainly have been on the receiving end of multiple reviews calling my female characters who resort to violence kick ass and feisty 
which is, is not typically how I view people who shoot other human beings or slit their throats or break their noses in the furtherance of goals, you know, in real life. I don't know. Like, I, I will sleep on this because I want to have a think about it. Like, because here's the last piece, I guess, of this particular puzzle of, of gender. Um, in, in one of the previous books I was writing, and I know I said I wasn't going to include anything from previous books, but occasionally, um, you know, I think one of the great things about failing a novel is often there's bits from it you can cannibalize in a new thing you can often save some of the like healthy organs and transplant them a transplant and whack we call it we can take the good bits out of a previous thing and use them in a new thing and um i i started the book with a made-up quote which i wrote quite late in the process and um to be honest i liked the quote but it was nothing to do with the story whatsoever it was probably the best uh, i don't want to oversell it but i think it was the best thing about the story um but it just didn't fit the story and it's a shame because it i felt like it was a really strong start to a novel but it didn't fit the story and so i was feeling like uh... anyway and here's how the quote goes so it's like a made-up quote it says there was once a storyteller who could reduce whole taverns to laughter with a single line. All her stories began the same way. Once upon a time, there was a good king. That seems relevant to this story, right? It, it suggests a, a tone. Our protagonist is a king, but we're suspicious of entrenched power. That's what, you know, that's the kind of, I don't know how to explain it, that's the kind of point, really. I've even had an idea for this novel's title based on that quote, which would be, the only good king. Which I kind of like because it's a play on words, not to over explain it. It's not that sophisticated, but I just like the double meaning in that title, like because it implies our protagonist. Is he a good king surrounded by corruption? You know, is he an exception? He's the only good king. Is he the only good king of the title? But of course, it's also the format of the old phrase. The only good X is a dead X. And he's almost immediately going to be a dead king. So is he redeemed by being dead? Now, admittedly, in both of those bits, the quote and the title, I could replace king with queen. There was once a storyteller who could reduce whole taverns to laughter with a single line. All her stories began the same way. Once upon a time, there was a good queen. And the title would be The Only Good Queen. Do they land in quite the same way. I must admit, and perhaps I sound like the most condescending Muppet in the world here, such are the perils of doing one's thinking out loud, especially when it comes to issues like misogyny and representation and things like that. And especially, um, you know, just bear that in mind. I realise I might not be getting this quite right, but one of the reasons we do most of our writing in secret, to be honest, actually, is, is to give us the freedom to make mistakes and blunder without harming anyone or without anyone jumping down our throats and calling us an idiot. But I'm always slightly wary or more wary about stuff that is implying violence against or the murder of women. You know, like the only good queen. It, I don't know, it just sounds a little less kind of like funny. It sucks in a way because that first quote lands differently because I think readers hear both the concept of royalty and the concept of gender. Like the idea of once upon a time there was a good king like, I feel like we almost believe that the, uh, um, a good queen is more plausible and therefore it's less obviously ironic that the people are laughing because once upon a time there was a good king. Well, of course, there would never be such a thing as a good king. And we've had the title of the book to prime us, the only good king. So that's the kind of a punchline. 
once upon a time there was a good queen is it just suggesting incompetence i don't know i don't know whether it kind of confuses the joke now this is reminding me of something that bojack horseman uh, writer Raphael bob waxberg uh, talked about once if you haven't watched bojack horseman all you need to know is it's a comedy cartoon for grown-ups where some of the characters are humanoid animals and he'd written a scene with a visual joke where two people are waiting to cross the road and one of them's a human business person and the other's a dog person with a big long tongue and the dog person drools all over the human that's it that's the joke and when the artist um lisa hanawalt drew it she drew the two characters as female and uh Raphael Bob Waxberg said he felt weird about that and he talked about uh, what he realised when he that he was feeling. Quote, The thinking comes from a place that the cleanest version of a joke has as few pieces as possible. For the dog joke, you have the thing where the tongue slobbers all over the business person. But if you also have a thing where both of them are ladies, then that's an additional thing and it muddies up the joke. The audience will think, why are those characters female? Is that part of the joke? The underlying assumption that there is the underlying assumption there is that the default mode for any character is male. So to make the characters female is an additional detail on top of that. In case I'm not being 100% clear, this thinking is stupid and wrong and self-perpetuating unless you actively work against it. And I'm proud to say I mostly don't think this way anymore. End quote. So I'm not sure we need to go to either extreme of beating ourselves up for being stupid and wrong, nor feeling proud for clearing the low, low bar of not being reflexively misogynistic. But I think he makes a good point there. And I think he, it was good that he took the time to unpack his own problematic thinking. Um, I, I think... When I look at whether those lines that I've talked about l land less well, I think I'm resisting in part because I feel like talking about a king is a cleaner joke, if you like. It's not funny per se, uh, but it's the same principle that he, he was talking about there. It appears to be just about royalty uh, when you talk about king, because men, at least in many domains, still feel like the default, the same way we do these things with race and sexuality and cis normative assumptions and all those kind of things you know when we talk about it happens all the time we have authors and then we specify black authors you know we have authors and gay authors authors and trans authors authors and working class authors and every time we do that the message is that's repeated is that a bunny quotes author is a white straight cis middle class male unless we specify otherwise. If I say author, the implication is that 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 the default is white, straight, cis, middle class male. And there's nothing wrong with being some or all of those things, by the way. Lots of lovely, beautiful people come under many or all of those categories, um, in, in, including me. But I bet it gets terribly wearing if you don't and you're constantly being othered by the by by your uh definitional things becoming uh, adjectives that are appended on the front of author whereas i don't get introduced as a white author i don't get asked about writing the white experience i don't get asked about writing a middle class experience i rarely i can't re remember really ever being asked about writing the male experience or the english experience or any of those things um 
or the cis experience uh so i i imagine that gets tiresome now on the other hand in case you think i i'm sort of wringing my hands too much over this on the other hand to take into an extreme this logic would say you can't write about a king okay you can't do a story starring a king if you take this too far because you're always reflexively going to go well why can't he be a she why can't it be a queen uh and 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 go what because it makes the joke more complicated why not a queen why not fight against the assumption and indeed why should our putative monarch be a he or a she they could be neither or both is the assumption they're cis and if you can feel me resisting there again or you know reluctantly it seems if it seems like i'm ticking a series of things that i have to mention you probably you know i'm trying to open up here so maybe you might notice some of these impulses in yourself one day if you share them but part of me is thinking well what wouldn't that complicate it further you know why would i why would i do that why would i do why would why would, why would i make my main character trans you know like uh, do, and then i'd have to explain that and uh, won't it be harder for me to i might have to write gender neutral pronouns if they're non-binary won't readers think that i'm making some point now about gender that the story is about gender not revenge or monarchy or power or just you know a yarn it can't be an adventure yarn because of the the character i must be making some subtle point about something you know can't i include one or two of these characters but put them in tertiary roles where their differences can work as interesting flavor rather than dis distracting from my main themes and and again just to in case it's not entirely clear i think those are all really really bad reasons and that thinking is bad to not write you know non-binary characters or trans characters or or any kind of like marginalized group the idea that you can only do it if you're making some additional point and the story's about that aspect of their their identity that's that's just bizarre thinking but it, it it's it, it sort of infects so much of our thinking sometimes i think not for ev not for everyone you might be terrific at this but i'm just having to work through some of these assumptions because here's the thing like it's fine for me to make my protagonist uh, a, a cis male that's absolutely fine he would in fact be the first such protagonist i've written in a novel but i just have to acknowledge that i'm making that choice you know it's not a default that the character magically comes to rest on when I refrain deliberately from making a statement. It's not some point of purity. It doesn't make them... I can't just go, oh, I want to make my main character to be just a sort of, like, normal everyman character because that would be incredibly unself-aware. Oh, look at the default. It just happens to be someone quite close to a lot of aspects of my own identity that's that's when i'm not saying anything but as soon as i include anyone else i'm saying a thing about a certain group you know it's fine for me to go oh i just want to write a dude for this one because i haven't done that much and that's how he first appeared in my head and i'm cool with that and i've thought about it and i'm still cool with that i'm allowed to write about whoever or whatever i want and people are free to not read or complain write essays objecting or whatever right um but it's just I think it's worth my acknowledging. And if this this seems tiring to you, I mean, it's kind of tiring for everyone, <laughs> uh, right? But some of us have got the, you know, are in a position where we don't have to bother thinking about this if we want. And I think it's worthwhile. I think it just makes your story better as well to think about these things in the end because we start engaging with characters as real people. But I just think I have to, like, 
acknowledge and fess up to and confront the fact that every all of these decisions are decisions they're choices i need to own that that's all now having had this debate out loud uh, you know i can actually feel myself tilting slightly towards making the protagonist female uh i do God, it's really hard talking about this because it really exposes a lot of my I guess unconscious biases and prejudices and stuff because I do worry that it will make the reader if I have the main character a queen not a king root for her a bit more than I was originally planning you know I I don't know where that prejudice I have comes from that violent female protagonists are inherently more likable than male ones Um, maybe in your experience that's not the case but I I guess it just seems maybe for a lot of readers it seems like an inversion of historical societal norms so it seems like punching up um that that a female protagonist who goes around sort of killing people um it seems like a kind of act of liberation or something like that i don't know Uh, gosh but i don't want to write a story that's all about you know how some royals are good and some are bad and you just got to pick the right side right i don't I'm not interested writing. I'm not that interested in writing a story that's just about how. That's just another story about how the monarchy is great. Really, there's just noble uh, monarchs and ennoble monarchs, and you've got to kind of because because basically then it's buying into the whole logic of the monarchy. You know, monarchists can have uh, you know completely believe in sort of fights of wars of succession and um illegitimate heirs and stuff like that that all has to be worked out but ultimately there should be a king or queen they believe in that um i just kind of don't think that that's ever a good thing so somehow the story needs to reflect that and i I don't want to make my character too sympathetic i guess in the middle of this because and just I kind of think it's I think it'd be interesting to have us feel a bit more conflicted about what they're doing or maybe I do maybe that maybe maybe I'm overthinking it and actually it'd be really cool to have a character that everyone's like frigging rooting for maybe this is the way to make them maybe I should have make them feel more likable than sympathetic and I don't know like am I am I being silly that I think gender has an impact on that maybe i am i don't know maybe maybe that's just my feeling about it uh i don't know uh maybe you know maybe politics can i don't think you can write an apolitical story but maybe i just go i'm not going to worry about the politics of this story maybe that can just fuck off i'm writing pulp it's just going to be it is what it is and um i'm just going to let allow myself to be led, led by the story and if the politics of the story are not entirely of a piece with my personal politics um that's fine who knows much to ponder so we've got an idea we've got the beginnings of a protagonist i quite you know i think we've come up with some of the mechanics of how they might be resurrected i don't know still don't know by whom um i'm gonna go away and think about this uh because i think we've kind of run on long enough next time i want to go a little bit into the potential supporting cast i think that's the next bit that maybe has a kind of nice bit of uh, flavor to it who are the suspects who are the ser- series of people that he she or they um, is going to head out to seek answers stroke revenge from i think we can have fun with that because this is pulp and so we can really get broad and tropey and cook up some cool character designs i hope or at least the beginnings of them 
I do hope this was useful for you. This is definitely new uncharted territory for me. So uh, I've got no idea how it's landing with you. I hope it's interesting. hope it sparked some ideas. If you like the show, um, Death of a Thousand Cuts only exists because of the support of listeners. Please consider going to my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and dropping me a few beans or setting up a monthly donation, which means I get a regular, reliable bit of support. You know, if you're able to, I'd love that. It makes a huge difference. And thank you to everyone who already does support the show. It's a beautiful thing. That's why I'm able to do it and spend a ridiculous amount of time making it. Um, I'm grateful for my community of listeners thank you um if there's any questions that have come up from today's show any suggestions you might have um any contributions you want to make uh questions you've got about the direction i'm taking this whatever um things you'd like more of things you'd like less of um you can i am you know actually open to constructive criticism uh i've made some changes in the past and that's you know i i do do that i'm not saying i always immediately enjoy the feeling of being criticized but it's useful in the end um but anyway if you or if you just want to say hello you can um drop me a line via my website timclepert.co.uk just click the contact me button and drop me an email i love hearing from you the only thing i'll say is right now please don't send me ideas for this novel i'm writing going hey you could do this or maybe the king queen monarch whoever could do this or maybe this could be a a, a novel that you should well no actually i don't mind if you're saying this is a novel you should read that's along the same lines that's cool but just please don't start sending me your own ideas for where i should take it otherwise i might have to start deleting emails without reading them because if you send me an idea for a character or a scene later on and because we're all working from the same uh set of starting bits it might end up being a bit similar to something i was planning to do anyway but then i'll look like i was potentially might you know have plagiarism problems where it looks like i copied something from a listener I don't really want to want that. Uh, so, you know, much as I'd love to write this thing as a community and maybe that, you know, maybe co-writing something and doing some workshops where we come up with ideas and write a novel together, that'd be cool later on. But um, by all means, flag ideas that I've mentioned that you think are cool. If I, you know, mentioned one idea and you disagree with me and you think, I actually think you should have gone with that thing you mentioned, that's fine. Um, but I just don't, add your own ideas in please because i don't want to find i can't write uh, a plot strand that actually i was planning on putting in because someone else has gazumped me by accident right that's it oh gosh um not sure whether this is going or whether this is going to work uh but i'm thank you for following me along this new experiment uh i hope you're really well i'm looking forward to finding out and i'm going to keep going with it because the main thing is i don't know whether this is going to work but we only learn things by striking out into uncharted territory. Hope you found all this useful. Um, hopefully the ones after this first show are going to be a little bit uh, briefer. But thank you for sticking with me to the end. Take care and have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>